The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. It's been a month since we've been in John, you know, with the holidays and with the storm. So we're back in chapter 6. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study, and we're working our way through chapter 6. This chapter, i got to remind you a few things before we get going, because it's been, like I said, it's been a month, all right? This chapter records the high point of Yeshua's ministry, of His popularity, all right? This is the only chapter in John that treats the Galilean phase of Yeshua's ministry, which occupies a lot of the synoptics. From the end of this chapter on, Yeshua's popularity begins to wane, and He enters really into the opposition phase. You know, if you read the beginning of this chapter, you know, it talks about, and the crowds, a large crowd followed Him. You read the the first verse in chapter 7, and it says, the Jews were seeking to kill Him. So He goes from popularity, the crowds are following, to now they want to kill Him. What happened? Well, one of the things that happened, he talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. That would kind of thin out the crowds, wouldn't it? All right, we're, we're going to look at that. Chapter 6 one says, After these things, Yeshua went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. Now, that's kind of a vague expression, after these things. It doesn't teach a tight chronology, but it's a generic statement that now we're leaving the old subject of chapter 5 and we're moving to a completely different scenario. Chapter 5 is a unit. Chapter 6 is a unit. Because you'll see in, in chapter 7, same thing after these things. 5, 6, 7 all start that way. So we're, we're starting a complete unit, just like in chapter 5. Now in this chapter, Yeshua feeds over 20,000 people. And what we don't see here that the other Gospels fill on, is what happened immediately preceding this feeding of the multitude, which was the slaughter of John the Baptist. All right, and you're reading the other Gospels, you pick this up, and it just helps fill in the story here. You know, Yeshua and His disciples are getting away. They, they need a break. So they're, they're going to over the other side of the Lake of Galilee, and John the Baptist just died, so, you know, this is, this is on their minds. And the other Gospel writers, like I said, Fill us in on this. <clears throat> the twelve, they tell us, had just returned from a preaching ministry. All right? And so Yeshua kind of wants to take them apart by himself. They're exhausted. Some of the Gospels tell us they don't even have time to eat. So basically, they're trying to get away. They're going to the east side for some r and It's desolate over there. There's no people. Well, what happens when they get over there? There's thousands of people already there waiting for them. <laughs> so they're not catching a break at all. All right? So they get there, instead of having a break, they got this crowd, so Yeshua starts healing people, and then he ends up feeding them. And he feeds most likely 20,000 people with five barley loaves and two fish. That's spreading that little food a lot, really thin, okay? (laughs) And this caused the people to say, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Now the prophet they're talking about is the one Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18, all right? So they're convinced that, you know, hey, this must be the prophet Moses talked about. And messianic expectations are running really high at this time. And the miracles of the Lord that he's doing only serve to fan the flames of their enthusiasm. So this crowd is pumped up. 
All right? Moses, if you remember, had provided military leadership for the Israelites. He had liberated them from the oppression of the Egyptians. And these Jews now concluded that Yeshua was going to do the same thing for them. And so they now sought to secure his political leadership, even if they had to do it by force. And Yeshua realizes this, so immediately after he feeds them, the multitude, he puts the disciples in a boat and he gets them out of there. Why? He doesn't want them caught up in this messianic fever. He doesn't want them caught up. Yeah, yeah, Lord, let's become, let you become king. Let's worship, you know, and no, he's immediately, Mark says, after he fed them, stuck them in a boat, sent them, he goes up in the mountain to pray. Later that night, as he's praying, they're out in the Sea of Galilee, storm comes up, bad storm, they're rowing, not getting anywhere, so he walks to them on the water to get to their boat. When he gets in the boat, the storm stops and he teleports the boat to shore. They're at Capernaum instantly, bang. What's the purpose of walking on water in a teleporting miracle? Why is that even in there? It doesn't fit with the rest of the story. You know, the story about feeding, the, he feeds all these people, then he goes in to talk about bread of life and the bread of life, and he gives this whole, you know, sermon on the bread of life. Why stick that in there? Why the water miracle? <clears throat> I think it's a private miracle for the disciples, because after all that's happened, they don't get it. Okay? They just don't get it. Mark tells us in 652, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the lows, but their heart was hardened. They see this and they just don't get it. In spite of all he had done, healing people, they're watching this happen. They're watching all these people eat. I mean, he literally creates food. It didn't do it for the disciples. They're still not getting it. Now, remember in chapter 5, Yeshua told them, he, first of all, he healed the man at the pool. And then he goes into this teaching and he tells them, they say, you know, you're making yourself equal with God. And what's he say? You're right. I am making myself and I am equal, 100% equal with God. Okay? And they still didn't get that. <clears throat> so he gives them another miracle to prove he is much more than a political Messiah. Because that's what the crowd was seeing him as, a political Messiah. He is trying to teach them, I am Yahweh. Think about what they saw that night. I mean, they're out in a boat. In this storm, they're scared to death. They don't like water in the first place because that's the key to the underworld. That's the gateway to the underworld. So they don't like it. They see him walking on the water. They think it's a ghost coming up from the underworld. They're scared to death. He says, it's me. He gets in the boat, and all of a sudden, it's calm. And they turn around, and look, we're at Capernaum. You know? And it's just, you know, it's incredible. It's amazing. This is not normal stuff. Matthew records their response. When they get into the boat, and the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped, saying, you are certainly God's son. What is unusual about this verse? What's wrong with the picture of this verse? Who is in the boat, first of all? Who's in the boat? Okay, what are the disciples? They're Jews, right? Jewish men, okay? Those who were in the boat worshipped him. You got any problem with Jewish men worshiping somebody besides Yahweh? For a Jew to worship anybody but Yahweh is a capital offense. So if they're worshiping him, guess what? They, they're starting to make some connections. The neurons are starting to fire, and they understand now he's much more than a political messiah. They're starting to get, this is Yahweh, because they're worshiping him. And a Jew's not going to do that. 
unless they understand this. Well, following this event, Lazarus is going to return to the theme of the bread and describe Yeshua as the bread of life. He's going to give us a major discourse revealing the true significance of the multiplication of the loaves. You know, he does the loaves as an illustration, then he does a teaching on it. All right, you saw it, now let me do some teaching on it. All right? Now, in the morning, after this healing miracle, you know, they, they're in the boat, they're, they make it up at Capernaum, and the crowd he just fed followed him over there. And they get to Capernaum, and they're looking for him. And when they found him, you know, they're all excited, and you think, oh, it's great, all these people are seeking Yeshua. Well, Yeshua pointed out their motivation in seeking him was hunger. You just got a free meal. That's the only reason you're seeking me, okay? And so they ask him for a sign, which is, you know, these people just saw him heal all these people. They saw him feed all these people. They say, can you give us a sign to prove that you're God's authorized representative, to prove who you, you know, because they're saying, you remember Moses? I mean, it's really cool, Yeshua. You fed us a whole bunch of us. That was neat. But you know what? Moses did that for 40 years. 40 years Moses provided manna for us. And so what Yeshua tell them, well, you guys are a little confused here because it wasn't Moses that did that. It was my father, all right? He's the one who provided bread for you. But they're basically saying, you know, if you're the new Messiah, if you're the one Moses talked about, then you should be able to do this stuff. You know, we want more than just one meal. They're looking for a whole program here. Physical. Now, as we study this chapter, keep in mind Yeshua's audience. You know, as David said as he started to read, he's talking to the Jews unbelieving Jews, skeptical Jews, all right? They're following them, but they're following them because, hey, it's a free lunch. I mean, you know, that's you put out a free lunch and everybody comes, okay? They ate the miraculous bread and they wanted to make Yeshua their king. But he didn't come to reign physically over the Jews. He came to reign spiritually over all men. So they later sought Yeshua in Capernaum, but they're doing it for the wrong reason. They wanted him to be the new Moses who could provide them with a lifetime supply of physical bread. So Yeshua tells them for the second time, and this is where our text begins in verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life. Now the whole discussion of the manna in verses 22 through 34 appears to have been designed to lead to this statement. He's talking about manna, he's talking about the wilderness, he's talking about Moses, and he says, I am the bread of life. He claims to be the bread of life three times, verse 35, 48, and 51. And the word picture of the bread reveals that He alone is the spiritual truth that provides life. He fed the 20,000 with five loaves and they had 12 baskets of leftover. He's trying to show them, I am the bread of life. Now the fundamental thought that would have been associated with this idea of bread by Yeshua's audience is that of nourishing and sustaining life. That's bread to them as a staple. Just as physical life depends on food, symbolized by the bread, so spiritual life depends on Yeshua. He says, your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and they die. Okay? They all die, right? Throughout this discourse, Yeshua is drawing a contrast between the manna fed the Israelites in the desert and the true bread of which He is the type. The manna came down from heaven. They went out and gathered it. It lasted for one day, except on Friday. Friday, it lasted two days. Because he told them, don't go out on the Sabbath. So Friday lasted them for two days. 
Of course, they disobeyed. <laughs> no matter what he did, they disobeyed. Now, so this bread, 40 years, they went out and picked up bread. This is pretty supernatural. But, you know, it's funny, naturalists, all right, those who have trouble with the supernatural, and there's a lot of people who do. I mean, there's a lot of Christians who have trouble with the supernatural. They sought to find something out in the desert that might correspond to the manna. I mean, they want something out there now, something physical, something that explains this, so they don't have to believe in the supernatural that God provided bread for these people. They, they want to say it's just simply feeding off the things that fall from the tamarisk tree, or perhaps some insect out there is producing this thing, and they're eating this, and you know it's sweet, and so, yeah, this is what they found. But they can't find it. Because it was a supernatural provision of Yahweh designed to feed them through the time of the wilderness journeys. The manna was merely a substitute for ordinary food. It didn't have power to prevent death. The generation that had been miraculously fed by the bread, like all other generations, they died. Therefore, Yeshua argued it could not be the true bread from heaven. That man is not the true bread, he's saying. I'm the true bread. I, only I can stop death and provide eternal life. He says in verse 50, This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Now remember, all through this text, he's making comparisons with Israel, comparisons with the manna. So let's compare this verse with uh, Exodus 16.15. Exodus 16.15, it says, When the sons of Israel saw it, the manna, they said to one another, What is it? And that's what manna means. What is it? So basically, that's what manna. What's it? What's it? What is this? We don't know what it is. For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which Yahweh has given you. Now look at verse 50 of John 6. It is the bread which comes down out of heaven. He's saying the same thing. In John 50, he's not talking about manna. He's talking about Yeshua who came from Yahweh and provides eternal life. Now the contrast between the manna and Yeshua, the bread from heaven, has already been introduced in verses 30 through 33. And now one further aspect of that contrast is developed. The man in the wilderness, heaven sent though it was, was useful for sustaining only natural life in the desert conditions. It could not bestow eternal life. Now it's not difficult to see, I think, in the man a picture of the Lord Yeshua. The man was mysterious to the Jews. They didn't understand what it was. Just as the Lord... There's a lot of mysterious things about him that people just can't seem to get. Another thing I want you to see in this text is the term eat and feed dominate this passage. Verse 49, 50, 51, 52, 53, 54, 56, 57, 58. Talk about eating, talk about feeding. Look at verse 51. He says, I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Yeshua is the living bread, not the manna, but he also came down out of heaven. Just like the manna came from God, he came down out of heaven. Now, when Yeshua says, if anyone eats this bread, what does he mean? Now, remember, who's the bread? I am the living bread. He says, the bread is my flesh. So he's the bread. His flesh is the bread, and he says, 
if anyone eats the bread. What's he saying? Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? See, his audience, the Jews, take it literally, right? They didn't ask, what does Yeshua mean? They didn't say that. What they asked was, how can he give us his flesh? How can he do that? And so Yeshua responds, so Yeshua said to them, oh, well, let me explain it to you. I'll say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourself. That makes it clear, doesn't it? <coughs> I mean, you know, if you've got a teacher teaching and he's, it seems like, you know, you're confused about what he's saying, so you think he'd clarify, what's he do? This sounds like cannibalism. He says, Look, you know, I told you you got to eat my flesh. Well, that's not it. You've got to drink my blood, too. What does he mean by eating his flesh and drinking his blood? First, let me say to you, there's no textual issue in this verse. Okay, you know what I mean by textual issue? Sometimes different texts have different words, and you get into textual criticism, and you've got to find out what's the oldest manuscripts, what's the best text. What, there's no discrepancy here. This is what the text says. Isn't that comforting? This is what Yeshua said. That we know. Now, the question is, what in the world does he mean? <laughs> and as we get into that question, we are getting into hermeneutics. Someone tell me what hermeneutics is. All right, it is the science of biblical interpretation. You know, I'll tell you what, you people I know understand this because you've heard it many, many times, all right? But you ask a, a Christian, an average Christian, what hermeneutics is, and they'll say, Herma who? Because they never heard of hermeneutics. Well, the purpose of hermeneutics is to establish guidelines and rules for interpreting the Bible. Can you understand that? The Bible has rules? This blows away most Christianity. Rule? we got to have some kind of rule? You can't just make it say whatever we want it to say? Listen, any written document is subject to misinterpretation. You realize that, right? And thus we developed the safeguard to protect us, we've got rules for interpreting the Scripture. Anybody know what the Supreme Court's function as a board is? What is, their, what is the purpose of the Supreme Court? To interpret the Constitution. Now, do they do that? Well, no, they make stuff up, they add new things, they do all kinds of crazy stuff. How do you interpret the Constitution and say, I think the Constitution says gay marriage is good? Where do you find that in the Constitution? But they interpreted that they somehow came up with that. That's their job. Interpret it, not make up new stuff. Lord, we need to get back to some justices who even care about the Constitution and will stand on it. All right? Well, anyway, let's, let me not get going there. All right? They need to be involved in hermeneutics. And that's what hermeneutics is, interpretation. So Yahweh has spoken. All right, anybody that can read, you know, can pick up the Bible and say, well, it says this. I know what it says. What does it mean? And that's where disagreement comes. Well, I think it means this. Well, I think it means that. And I always say, I don't care what you think. What does it mean? If you didn't exist, what did it mean? Because that's what's important. You know, we got to interpret it in light of the original audience. The basic need of hermeneutics is to understand what he meant by what he said. 
so often we twist the scriptures. We pull it out of its context. We lift it out of the Bible. We grab a verse that we like, and we say, you know. Of course, you know the favorite one, Jeremiah 29. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good and not for you. He's not talking to you. He's talking to the exiles from Babylon. I mean, read the, go up one verse. At least read two, read a verse on each side of your favorite verse and put it in some kind of context. It's so important. The scripture was written in context. God didn't give the Bible, you know, in fortune cookies. Crack it open, pull, oh, look at my verse for today. No, he gave whole letters to people and they got to be in context. It matters. What the context surrounds it. Yeshua has spoken. Peter put it this way in his second epistle. As also in all his letters, he's speaking about Paul, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. Peter says, you know, some of the things Paul writes are hard to understand. And he says, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of Scripture to their own destruction. What did Peter just say? He's talking about Paul. Some things Paul says are hard to understand. And he says the unstable, they, they distort these as they do the rest of Scripture. He just said Paul's script, what Paul writing is Scripture. Because he's referring to the, you know, the Tanakh here. But he's saying, hey, what Paul writes is Scripture. He, he, they twist it just like you do the rest of Scripture. All right? The untaught here means the ignorant. And the word unstable here, asteriotos, it means unfixed, vacillating. We have to use the tools available to correctly interpret the Word of God. We don't want to be untaught and unstable. We don't want to distort the Word. We want to understand what it means. Because that's the only thing that really matters, people, what it really means. What you think it means, as I said, doesn't really matter much. Okay? What's the primary rule of hermeneutics? The analogy of faith, which means Scripture interprets Scripture. Now, does that make sense? You know, God's not going to say this over here and say something totally different over here. Use the Scripture to interpret itself. No part of Scripture can be interpreted in such a way as to render it in conflict what is clearly taught elsewhere in Scripture. Now, how do the Scriptures teach that we receive eternal life? By grace, through faith. So when we read Yeshua saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have eternal life, we're like scratching our heads saying, that doesn't fit with the analogy of faith. A literal understanding that doesn't fit. So to take Yeshua's words in our text literally would violate the analogy of faith. Now along with, there's many rules to hermeneutics, but another rule that's important here is the implicit is to be interpreted by the explicit. All right? Implicit means suggested but not plainly expressed. Explicit, that's clear. It's stated. It's definite. I think the fact that salvation is by grace through faith is pretty definite. All right? Peter says the problem with these untaught and unstable people is they distort the Scriptures. Now, the word distort here, strevlo, it means to put on a torture rack, to twist or to pervert. You know, it's real easy to twist or distort the Word of God. It's hard work to interpret it accurately. And that's our job. That's what we want to do, to interpret it as accurately as we can so we can understand what it is actually saying. 
What we see clearly stated in the Word of God is that salvation is by faith in Christ, not by eating His flesh and drinking His blood. Another rule that's important, they're all important, but for our text this morning, is interpret the Bible literally. Now, to interpret the Bible literally means to interpret it as literature. That is, the natural meaning of a passage is to be interpreted according to the normal rules of grammar, speech, syntax, and context. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. All right? Therefore, we're to take the word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal, literal biblical meaning, not 21st century meaning. In other words, Yeshua really walked on water. He really fed all these people with this, you know, couple fish and, you know, a couple loaves. He, he really did those things. Now, what we have to understand, you know, because some people are strict literalist, all right, and they say if it's in there, it's literal. Well, most of what the Bible says should be construed literally. Now, that freaks some people out. Most? What do you mean most? Well, the Bible uses metaphor. It uses parables. It uses apocalyptic language, and it uses anthropomorphism. Yeshua said in John 15, I am the vine. Is that literal? Is he really a vine? Is there grapes hanging off him and stuff? You know, no. Oh, it's a metaphor. The Mormons take anthropomorphism literally, and they say God is a man. It's a man like us because he's got hands and eyes and ears. Well, if you take that literalistic approach, what do you do with Psalm 17.8? Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. Got a bird now, a duck, chicken, what, you know. Remember the analogy of faith. Scripture cannot contradict Scripture. You've got to understand metaphors, parables, apocalyptic language. So when Yeshua says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, we have to look at that, you know, according to the rules of hermeneutics. Now, some of you are probably thinking, who in their right mind would interpret that literally? So let me ask you, who does interpret it literally? Oh, thank you. The Roman Catholic Church. They interpret these words literally. Okay, a Catholic commentary on this verse says this. Jesus is speaking literally and sacramentally, and he's using extremely strong language. It is his flesh that must be eaten. It is his blood that we must drink. John chapter 6 has been mutilated by the Catholic Church. They have used this to develop the sacrament of the Mass, where Christ is re-sacrificed again and again and again. And you eat His flesh and you drink His blood when you go to the Mass. Now, the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church base their view of transubstantiation in part on John chapter 6, when Yeshua talks about eating His flesh and drinking His blood. See, because when He says that, He says, this will give you eternal life. So if you don't do that, you don't get eternal life. Now, I know some people say, well, I don't know if the Catholic Church really believes that. Let me read you paragraph 1376 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. All right, the Council of Trent summarized the Catholic faith by declaring, because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly His body that was offering under the species of bread, 
It has always been the conviction of the church of God, that by that they mean the Catholic church, and this holy council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine, in other words, when the priest consecrates, you got bread and wine, the priest consecrates it, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and the whole substance of the wine into the substance of His blood. This change, the Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. So the Roman Catholic view says the bread literally, actually becomes the body of Christ. The blood literally, actually becomes the blood of Christ. They call this transubstantiation. Now, Roman Catholic scholars from the time the doctrine of transubstantiation was declared a dogma in AD 1215 insist that Jesus means that the bread is the very fact and true reality of His body. In other words, they take His words extremely literally. They contend that though the consecrated bread looks like bread, it's in reality or substance the very body of Christ. That's why they take such care. You've been to Catholic Mass, taking the communion, they put this tray under your face, a little platter, they stick it under your chin when you take the host or the drink because they don't want you to drop the body of Christ. Okay? <clears throat> I mean, they take it very literally. That's why they genuflect before the presence of the consecrated host in a Catholic sanctuary. Kathy and I, when we were planning on getting married. You know, her dad said he wouldn't walk her down the aisle if we didn't get married in a Catholic church. And I had just become a Christian, so I was like, no, I'm not doing that. So we went and talked to a Catholic priest, and he told us more than anywhere else, Christ is in that little box they got in front of the church where they keep the host and the wine. And man, you know, I was a rebel and radical, and I said, that's sad. The world's dying and going to hell, and you got Jesus locked up in a box up front, you know? <laughs> He didn't like that. Yeah, 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 real fun meeting. Well, I've been a Christian for six months, and I knew more scripture than this priest. You know, he taught, and I, you know, I just, we really, I had a good time with him. I did. I said, you and your buddies listen to all these people's sins, and you go back and share them with one. And no, I don't even remember what happened. I said, ah, I don't buy that for a second, you know. So anyway, <clears throat> eating flesh and drinking blood. What Yeshua is teaching here is not cannibalism which was a charge that the early Christians were literally executed for, all right, because of this kind of interpretation. Many interpreters of this verse have seen allusions to the Lord's Supper. They think, see, they, they read eating flesh, drinking blood, so a lot of people think, well, he, he's talking about the Lord's Supper here, all right? Sacramentalists find apparent support for their belief that the participation in the Eucharist is essential for salvation. So some people believe that. If you don't take the Lord's Supper... You're not going to be saved. Harris, Paul Harris writes this, Anyone who is inclined in the least toward a sacramental viewpoint will almost certainly want to take these words as a reference to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper because of the reference to eating and drinking. And that's true. People, you know, a lot of commentators say, oh, we're talking about the Lord's Supper here. Well, there's a real problem with that because you don't have eternal life unless you take of the sacrament. A.W. Pink gives us four reasons that John 6 does not refer to communion. He says, first, communion had not yet been instituted. 
How could he be talking about something that didn't exist? He instituted it on the night he was betrayed. Second, Je- <coughs> excuse me, Jesus is speaking here to unbelievers, right? Remember the context. Communion is for believers. Thirdly, the eating here is unto salvation or eternal life, while eating the Lord's Supper is for those already saved and points to fellowship. Fourth, he says, The Lord's Supper does not produce the results that are here attributed to eating and drinking Christ. If Jesus' words here refer to communion, by that he means the Lord's Supper, then you gain eternal life by partaking. Anybody want to say that's how you get saved? He says, which contradicts many other scriptures. In other words, it violates the analogy of faith. That salvation is through faith in Christ, not through participation in a ritual. So how could the Jews that Yeshua was talking to have understood his words literally? Or I guess I should ask, what would keep the Jews from understanding his words literally? Or what should have kept them from understanding his words literally? How does a Jew feel about drinking blood? The Torah forbade it. Leviticus 17, 10 through 12. Any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. All right, and eating blood, you get separated from Israel. You're cut off from Israel, all right, from worship, from the Lord. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you, on the altar, <clears throat> to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of life that makes atonement. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, he didn't say this to everybody, he said it to Israel, make that clear, no person among you can eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. Now, so in our text, Yeshua is saying, you got to eat my flesh, you got to drink my blood, The Torah says no Israelite can eat blood. Would Yeshua command what the Torah forbids? No, because He speaks for the Father. We saw this in John 5, but look at John 12, 49. I did not speak of my own initiative. He's not talking, you know, on His own authority. But the Father Himself sent me, has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. The Father is telling me what to speak. Look at John 8, 29. And he who sent me is with me and has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Christ is always doing what pleases the Father. So would it be pleasing to the Father for him to teach what the Torah forbade? No. So what did Yeshua mean by eating his flesh and drinking his blood? I mean, I think a literal interpretation should be ruled out. I think common sense should rule that interpretation out. I've taken Mass at the Catholic Church, and it didn't taste like flesh to me. It tastes like bread. I've drank the wine, and it, it's wine. It's not grape juice, you know. It's not literal, but somehow they say it is. It should be obvious, I think, that Yeshua is speaking metaphorically and not literally. By referring to his flesh and blood, he's figuratively talking about his whole person, 
This is a figure of speech called synecdoche, in which one part stands for the whole. Now, we use the word bread as a synecdoche when we say he's the breadwinner. Doesn't mean he just brings home bread, right? Hopefully he brings home more than that, okay? Provides a roof, pays for the electricity, you know. But he's a breadwinner, means he provides, all right? Well, in verses 51 through 59, Yeshua introduces a new metaphor for believing on him, namely, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. The pericope in this section is highly metaphorical. The terms coming to Yeshua, verse 35, listening to him, verse 45, seeing him, verse 40, eating his flesh, 53, drinking his blood, 53, all mean believing on him. This whole text is all about that. You use a bunch of different metaphors. They all mean the same thing. And what becomes clear is that when Yeshua talks about feeding on him, it means the same as believing. Those who believe on him, in other words, whoever eats the bread, will experience eternal life to live forever. Now let's back up in the text and, and do a little more detail here in these verses. In verse 51, it says, I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. Anyone may eat this bread, he shall live to the age. Now I'm using Young's literal here, okay, because I want you to see the tense. He says, I will give is, is my flesh that I will give for the life of the world. All right, Young's literal does a good job showing the ten, tenses. The bread also, he says, I will give is my flesh. The future tense here, I will give. It's a future tense. The giving up of the flesh is referring to a sacrificial death. And that's what he's talking about. Eating his flesh refers to to faith in the atonement. He's got to die. And it's faith in His death. Let me just say here again, you know, the word world here, people say He gave His life for the world. That's everybody. No, it's not. Okay? It's not everybody without exception. It's everybody without distinction. Both Jews and Gentiles. I gave, he gave His life for the world to cover the Jews, to cover the Gentiles. Doesn't mean every single person. Now, remember that the hearers of Yeshua that were listening to him right now, they're on their way to the Passover to eat the Paschal Lamb. Uh, John 6, 4 says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. So Christ says to them, you have to eat me, the real Passover Lamb. That was a type. I am the anti-type. I am offered for the world. Christ hears respond to this by saying, the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? These Jews are thinking literally. Which is what we've seen all through this gospel, right? Yeshua speaks about anything, and they take it literally. You know, he says, destroy this temple. Three days I'll raise it up. More than they think. This temple's been, you know, years and years of being built. And he says, I'm speaking of the temple of my body. They just, whatever they, he said, they took it physically. In chapter 3, he tells Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. What's Nicodemus say? Can a man crawl back in his mother's womb? And be, what? Nicodemus, how can you be so dumb? You're a teacher of Israel, you don't understand these things? I'm thinking, I'm talking spiritually. Yeshua tells the woman at the well, you need living water. And she goes, you don't have a bucket, how are you going to get it out of the well? I'm not talking about water, I'm talking about spiritual things. In our text, Yeshua speaks of eating flesh and drinking blood, and his audience takes it in a literal way. And guess what? They are repulsed. They should be. Right? 
Then the Jews began to argue with one another. The word argue here, makhoma, it means to war. Figuratively, it means to quarrel, to dispute, to fight. It is the Greek word for fighting. So an intense argument erupts among the Jews. All right, there, he says, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they all are, what the heck does this mean? They're arguing with one another because one's saying, it well, must mean this, it must mean that. What the heck's he talking about? So they're fighting over what he meant. <clears throat> How can he give us his flesh to eat? They didn't get it. They didn't get it at all. And so verse 53, he says to them, Truly, truly, I say it unto you, lest you eat my flesh of the Son of Man, and you drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. Now, blood, if you go back through the Tanakh, primarily represents a violent death. Blood is metonymy for death. That's how it's used all throughout the New Testament. So what's he saying? Yeshua is hinting that he would die violently, and he connected the importance of belief in him with his atoning death. Yeshua's hearers should have understood that he was speaking metaphorically, but this reference offended a lot of them. They got offended. We'll see that in verses 60 and 61. So what is promised to those who eat his flesh and drink his blood? What's promised? Eternal life, right? If you have no life in yourself, you don't eat his flesh, you don't have eternal life. You got to drink his flesh. I, I mean, eat, yeah, eat his flesh, you got to drink his blood. Now, let's compare a couple texts here. Compare this verse. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'm going to raise him up. Now, let's compare that to verse 40. He says, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him, see the yellow both correspond. What's going to happen to those who believe? Well, he'll have eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. The only substantial difference is that one speaks of eating Yeshua's flesh and drinking His blood, while the other one is precisely in the same conceptual location, speaks of looking to the Son and believing in Him. So the conclusion, people, here is obvious. The former is the metaphorical way of referring to the latter. Augustine wrote this, Believe, and you have eaten. You want to know how to eat his flesh and drink his blood? Believe, because that's what he's talking about in this context, people. Believe. To believe in Yeshua is to come to Yeshua. To eat his bread is to feed on him, is to eat his flesh and drink his blood. All these actions result in the same outcome, eternal life. To believe in him is to believe that he is God in human flesh, the holy, almighty Yahweh standing there in visible, touchable form. Now, remember back to chapter 1 in verse 14. It says the Word became flesh, right? It is as the incarnate Logos that Yeshua is able to give His flesh for the world. And readers couldn't help but remember that Yeshua had already been presented as the Lamb of God. Remember John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God. They understood the Lamb of God as a sacrifice. All right, He says, you got to eat My flesh. you got to partake of My flesh, the sacrifice that I made. And he's already referred to the cross in chapter 3 when he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So when he talks in chapter 6 about eating and drinking his flesh and his blood, he means to trust the one who dies for you. Receive him as one who gives his life for you. The idea that their Messiah would die as a sacrifice 
was a huge problem to the Jew. They were utterly unwilling to accept that. Even the disciples struggled with that. Remember when Peter, when he told them, I'm going to die? Never, Lord, that's not going to happen. Well, remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus? Yeshua took them back into the Tanakh, and he showed them from their scriptures that Messiah must suffer and die. And when you come to the book of Acts, and their initial preaching is what? Messiah had to suffer and die. In other words, they're connecting Yeshua with the text of the Tanakh, showing this is what the text said. The word eats here is an interesting word. Hull Harris writes this. The participle in verse 54, trogo, eats, is almost shockingly graphic. It means to eat noisily, often used of animals, gnaw, nibble, munch. When used with reference to people, it often has the idea of enjoyment and close comradeship. So we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. So we have to ask, why did Yeshua use such graphic, repelling analogy? I mean, why would he say this to these? He's already said believe. Why can't he just leave it alone? Why does he have to go into this stuff about eating flesh? He just confused the Catholic Church is all he did, you know? I mean, come on. Why use this kind of language? I mean, that, don't we have to ask those questions? Why talk like this? Let me propose to you a reason, or a possible reason, why he talked this way. Maybe he's trying to dispel some of this mob that's following him. You know, they want to make him king. They want him to lead a rebellion against the Romans. I mean, they're following him because for the wrong reasons. And remember in this chapter, the Lord has stressed the sovereignty of God in salvation. Because he keeps saying to these people, you don't get it. But that's okay because you haven't been given to me of the Father. You don't get it, but that's okay because you haven't been drawn of the Father. That's okay. You don't, that's why you don't get it. So he stresses that over and over. So maybe Christ is speaking this way to push away the non-elect who want a political Messiah. Get You guys, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, well, we give up. We're leaving. That's far. We can't go that far. Drinking Kool-Aid maybe, but eating flesh and drinking blood. No, I'm out of here. And listen, it works. Look at John 666. As a result of this, yeah, you got it. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew. As a result of his teaching. And we're not walking with them anymore. I'd have left. I'm not eating anybody's flesh and drinking their blood. They didn't get it. We got to get out of here. This is crazy. This is just not right. So I think he uses this strong language for a reason. I'm trying to get the false people. Listen, the people who are pretending don't add anything to the church, okay? They don't add anything. You know, there, there's always in a church, you know, a group who are superficially attached to the church that like religion, that like the idea of, you know, some spiritual feeling, whatever, but they're not, they haven't trusted Christ. They don't benefit the church. You know, people worry about them. Well, you'll chase people. No, that's okay. The church just gets more pure when that, that kind of, you know, those people aren't superficially attached there. But this crowd's following him. He doesn't need it. Popularity is over now, okay? As we saw, when you get to the end of this chapter, now they want to kill him. So they're done. They're done. The, the superficial people following him for the wrong reasons, leaving. Maybe that's, you know, 
at least to me, that makes good sense that, you know, he'd use such strong language. I don't know why else he would use it, because it, it's definitely strong, all right? It turn, caused them to just turn away. <clears throat> all right, he says, and I'm going to raise him up. The person who eats the flesh and drinks the blood, I'm going to raise him up. This is the fourth time Yeshua said this in this chapter. When he talks about raising him up, he's referring to the resurrection. And he tells us that the resurrection is going to happen at the last day. That's not the last day of earth. That's the last day of the old covenant. They understood that. The new covenant doesn't have a last day because it's an everlasting covenant. There's no end to it. Now, we know that the last day happened in AD 70 because the Jewish temple was destroyed. The Jews never have sacrificed since that. There hadn't been a priesthood since then. It's all done. That was the last day. That's when the resurrection happened. Now, if you want more information on it, see the last teaching we did on John. I went into great deal detail on what the last day means. He says, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Unlike the manna, Yeshua is the food and drink that provides eternal life. It's true. It's not just temporary. Verse 56, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. The word abides here is the Greek word mano. It's a favorite word of Lazarus. He's going to use it over and over in this text. Used here, it's synonymous with having eternal life. He was saying that believers continue to possess eternal life. They're never going to lose it. Believers remain in Christ and He remains in them. Now, Yeshua is not speaking here to His disciples about the importance of believers abiding in fellowship with God. He's going to do that when He gets to chapter 15. Here He's speaking to unbelievers about entering into a saving relationship with God. Now, commenting on this verse... Catholic theology states, Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, augments our union with Christ. The principal fruit of receiving the Eucharist in Holy Communion is an intimate union with Christ Jesus. Indeed, the Lord said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So the Catholics see all this talk about eating flesh and drinking blood referring to communion And that's why it's a sacrament in their church. And that's why when you partake of it, you literally spiritually move yourself into communion and union with the Lord. Verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This living God in sending the Son establishes that he would also have life in himself. Now, this argument here is kind of a compressed form of what we saw in chapter 5, verse 21 and 24 through 27. He says, I live because of the Father. This is referring to the eternal generation of the Son. We talked about that back in chapter 5. It's basically a teaching that the Son is eternally begotten by the necessary will of the Father, but that the Son is not created or caused and that neither the Son nor the Holy Spirit is dependent on the Father or any other member of the Godhead for existence. The eternal generation of the Son is a statement on the relationship within the Trinity, the Father and the Son, before the Incarnation. Therefore, the term is not a reference to causation, but to the nature of relationship. The eternal generation of the Son does not mean that the Father brought the Son into existence. That would deny the full immutability and deity of the Son of God. The Father's life extends to and through the Son to those who partake 
of the Son's flesh and blood. He who eats me, he also will live because of me. See, this helps us see that eternal life is essentially God's life that he imparts to the believers. For the Christian, eternal life is always mediated through the Son. However mystical the language of the fourth gospel, Lazarus cannot imagine any genuine spiritual life that's independent of Yeshua. Only way you get life, through Yeshua. And in verse 58, closes out this portion of the text. He says, this is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the the fathers ate and died. They ate that manna, they died. He who eats this bread lives forever. All right, remember, the whole thing is comparison with the manna and Yeshua. The Jews often substituted the term heaven for God. All right? Because they had this respect for God's name, they believe you should never utter it, so they would use heaven, meaning God. All right? Yeshua does that here. This is a figure of speech called metonymy, where the speaker or writer uses the name of one thing to associate it with or suggest by something else. All right? The Israelites who ate that physical bread that came down from God, they died in the wilderness. They ate manna for 40 years and they still died. But those who believe or eat this spiritual bread that came down out of heaven are going to live forever. Because this is the true bread. And that's what he says. I am the true bread. So to eat him is to live forever. Now, verses 48 to 58, this text that we looked at today stresses faith in Christ and his atonement. That's why he talks about the blood and eating his flesh. He's talking about his atonement It brings eternal life. That's what brings eternal life. Faith in Christ and His death for us. This text is not about a ritual. This text has nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. It's about faith alone in Christ alone and His atonement. Now because he talks about eating and drinking and people will try to make some comparisons to 1 Corinthians and Paul's teaching on the Lord's Supper and try to connect these two, they're not connected. Other than... The Lord's Supper reminds us of Christ's death for us, uh, His atonement for us. So that's what he's saying here. This this text is about faith in Christ. And he uses, again, I think he uses this strong language to deal with those people that are on the fringe that really aren't helpful. They're stirring things up, really. We want a political Messiah. He says, well, okay, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Nope, I'm leaving. And, And they departed. It's just weird that John 6, 6, 6 has to talk about departure of the disciples. I think that's kind of interesting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word together. Father, again, I pray you'd give us the heart of Bereans that we would examine this, Lord, on our own. We'd look at the words. We'd look at the context. You'd teach us, Father, that we might be Bereans, desiring to understand what the text says that we might live it out. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Thank you for your teaching. Amen.